I really enjoy worshiping someone else with someone else. There's just something really unique about being able to be with other people who are passionate about the same things that I am and who are going after the same God that I am. And so welcome, those of you that might have come in a little bit uh, after the service started this morning. Good morning. My name's Phil. I'm the, I serve as the pastor here at Echo. I've been married to my wife for almost 20 years. I have a six-year-old and I have a one-year-old, and we've been here as the pastors of Echo for just a little over six years. We are a church who, uh, we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take our relationship with God and we take your relationship with God very, very, very seriously. He's at the center of, we try and keep him at the center. We drift sometimes and we need the Lord to help us bring us back to to him. Um, But we want him to be the center of everything that we do and everything that we are here at our church. We've been in existence for a little over eight years. We are involved in an initiative to try and find a more permanent home. At the same time, we're not just sitting on our hands waiting for God to drop a facility out of the sky for us to inhabit before we get to work on his assignment to go into the world and preach the gospel. And so we're, tr- we're just pinning our ears back and going after him in a very special way. And that's part of behind the reason why, of course, if you're new here, you wouldn't know that we rearranged the service a little bit this morning, but we wanted to spend some more time worshiping and praying together and making sure we have ample time for that. And I definitely have a sense that there's more that God want, wants to do among us and even what we experienced over the last 45 minutes or so, but you come to a place where you're like, okay, maybe God is transitioning us into another mode of the way that he communicates. So we're going to do that. Good morning to those of you that are watching us on Facebook, either live or in an archived way. Those of you who are listening to our podcast, we're glad you're with us. Today's a little bit of a different, um, I mean, a little bit of a different message than perhaps if you've been listening to us or following us for some time. But if you are on social media and you are appreciative of all the hard work it takes from our team to, to make sure this all goes, um, why don't you like, comment, or share uh, this video that we've got. It's a great way to help spread the word about what's going on here. I was prepared this morning, and I have my notes right in front of me for uh, a sermon on using my spiritual gifts. It was a series that we planned to start today about 40 minutes ago. I just felt God say to put this one away, and we'll bring that back maybe next week. So I have no notes or handouts for you. The tech team has like the rest of the morning off. They don't have to put up any, um, any slides, but I do feel like God gave me something different to share. It probably won't be structured in the same way as a sermon, but I want to be a little scary for me, speaking you know, completely off of what I had spent uh, the last few weeks preparing for, but I do have a sense that I couldn't shake it. You know, sometimes, I don't know if, you're, if you ever go through this, but um, I have a hard time sometimes differentiating, this is going to sound really, really psychotic, the voices in my head. <laughs> yeah, some of you are already worried. You're like, this is my first Sunday here, and this is not off to a good start. <laughs> but no, I, I guess w- to clarify, there's not many, many, there's not multiple different voices and personalities. I mean, sometimes knowing when it is that the God of the universe might be speaking to me, Phil, uniquely, I don't take that lightly. Some people do. Some people are very casual with saying, well, the Lord said to me, That's not a casual thing that I speak out because if you read biblically, people who went around saying God spoke to them things that he didn't really speak to them ended up in a lot of trouble. (laughs) They misrepresented the God of the universe to anybody who would listen. And God's very protective of of his reputation and how he's viewed. So I want to be very careful about saying, you know, this thus saith the Lord to me. What I would say is as best as I can tell, and I'm sorry, this is hissing and popping. Let me move it away from my mouth a little bit. As best as I can tell, 
as best as I know God speaking to me. So, you know, you have your voice and you have God's voice kind of running simultaneously inside of you. And part of becoming a mature Christian is being able to recognize more quickly the difference between God speaking and me speaking. And sometimes you can't really put them in two different buckets, but just kind of recognizing what the Scripture calls the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking. And so I do feel Him redirecting, which is a word I'll use this morning, me way back to a passage I've probably read 10,000 times. Every time I felt bad about not reading the Bible, I started in Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> but I feel to go back to here for uh, a different purpose this morning. And so, can I invite you, if you have on your phone access to an app or to a copy of the Bible, uh, digitally pull that up. If you have a Bible with you, I'll make it real easy. Genesis 1, beginning at verse 1. I'll be reading maybe from a different translation than you have. But I want to share this with you. Again, I don't have a text to put on the screen. I don't have a big idea. I don't have notes. I have a thought that just keeps coming back to my mind that, comes out of Genesis chapter 1, and I feel like I need to share it with you this morning. Genesis chapter 1, let me put my little high-tech spotlights up here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is such a fascinating verse to me. Now, for, let me just say, this is not a message on different theories of how we got here, okay? This is not meant to be a scientific, apologetic defense of creationism versus evolution or Big Bang or any of the other theories that are out there. Uh, quite candidly, the Bible was never meant to be primarily a, a book of science. There's some science in there, but I mean, if you kind of just flip through the next pages by, you know, 30 verses in, God's done explaining to us as much as he wants us to know about how he made everything. But there's like 50 chapters in Genesis. In fact, there's like 14 chapters on Joseph. So think about it in God's perspective. There's 30 verses, roughly 40 sentences in the Bible that describe to us a question we've been debating for thousands of years, and that is how God made everything. And it's really not satisfying in the amount of detail that we get. It's not a, even a very scientific explanation. But then there's like 14 chapters on a joker named Joseph. So of all the things he's trying to get across to us, if we just at it, looked at it by volume of content... It would appear to me that the most important thing God's trying to convey to us through Genesis is not the scientific defense of how he created the earth from nothing, but more importantly about how he created man to be, the fall of man and the redemption of man. It's all in Genesis. It's all throughout the Bible. But there are some interesting things even in the first verse of the Bible. You have in the beginning, in the beginning of what? I guess in the beginning of time, God existed even before the beginning, which is kind of cool. It says, in the beginning, our word, God already was. So even before there was a beginning, there was God, says the Bible to us. Well, how did the writer know? I guess God revealed it to him. The writer wasn't there. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Interesting. Did the earth have a form at the beginning? Had no form. I don't know what that looks like. 
I don't know how to draw a picture of it. If I were filming a movie, I don't know what that scene would look like. It seems intrinsically impossible for me to imagine something that was, but it was formless and empty. I don't know, but it's the language that we have. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and, and I love this verse, and the Spirit of God. Did you, ever, did you notice the Holy Spirit is in the first verse of the Bible? And what was the Spirit doing? Hovering. Great word, isn't it? What do you think of when something, if a bumblebee is hovering near your leg, right? Or near your three-year-old's leg, and panic begins, hovering, you know? My six-year-old, when the cookies come out of the oven, (laughs) and he knows they're too hot to touch, but he's hovering. Here is, you know, what I think of as somebody who is fully capable of about to take action, but is being restrained by something. (laughs) And we have this picture in the beginning of Genesis. What we know from God is about to do something incredibly spectacular, and He's always been able to do it. He's about to start taking something that is empty and formless and making everything we see and know. And what does he work through to make this happen? We've got the Spirit of God hovering. Spirit of God who's going to be active in the creating process. But the Spirit of God is awaiting the word, I would say, to pounce. I don't know if he pounced. (laughs) But he's hovering over the waters. And I want you to imagine in your mind that moment in your life where you were formless and void and empty. I want you to imagine somebody in your life, if you're going to our small group, somebody on your prayer list, somebody on your impact list, who you're saying, you know, this person is a lost cause for Christ, but I'm praying for them. They are not religious. They're opposed to Jesus. Their life is a mess. They are formless. They're empty. I want you to imagine the Spirit of God hovering over their life, over their family, over every single circumstance that they have. The Spirit of God, you see Him hovering, waiting assignment, waiting permission from God to go and create, to go and reorder, to go and rearrange, to go and rename. All the things that we see happen through Genesis chapter 1 is really pointing to what the Holy Spirit now waits to do with people through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So before you give up on that person in your life you think is unreachable, can you just imagine in your mind's eyes the Spirit of God hovering over them today? Waiting for that person to open up their lips and confess Christ. And He is waiting to rush in and create. Now that's not the whole point. That's just verse 1. But I want you to begin to see, I want you to connect this to more than just a scientific, a lot of people think the only value in Genesis chapter 1, is to be able to get a candy bar at the end of children's church because you knew what happened on all seven days of creation. Or to be a scientific defense of creation versus evolution. Not to say that there's not value in that, but there's so much more packed in here. But here's what I really want to get to. A lot of, well, how did God do all of this? All the different things that he made. How did he do this? And this is what I want you to, to think about in your mind. You know, like if you had to film this, how did God do this? If God was an artist, how did he, how did he do this? Let's just look at a couple verses. Verse 2. And God, there's, a pat, there's patterns all through this chapter. 
One of them is a three-word phrase that repeats over and over and over and over again. And we see at the beginning of verse 2. Do you know what it is? And God said. And then there's another three-word pattern that comes up a lot. And there was. And God saw. And it was good. God said. God saw. It was. And it was good. You see this pattern all through, all through Genesis chapter 1. You see, God fully intends to see what he says. Did you hear what I just said? God fully intends to see everything that he says. Why would you want to cultivate an environment in your life where you can hear from God? Where you would be concerned? Because he's going to speak to you about things that he wants to see. And he fully expects to come into existence in your life. He fully expects it. Everything that he wants to share with you when you carve out some time to listen and to speak and to fellowship with him, he fully intends to see it. He said, let there be light and there was light. God saw the light was good and he separated that light from darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called light and there was evening and morning the first day. God said, let there be light and there was light. So how did God make light? Question number one, how did he make it? He said it. And it was. How did he do that? What raw materials did he use to make light? Are they in there? (laughs) No. We see that God has the ability to create what theologians say ex nihilo. Driving me nuts, sorry. From nothing. From nothing. There's a whole sermon in that. I won't give that to you today because that's not what I feel like. But I want you to see if you compare all these different days and how God made stuff. Have you ever watched that How They Were Made or How It Was Made show on TV? I made a few left turns on YouTube the other night while I'm trying to fall asleep. I ended up on this one, How They Make Saltwater Taffy. One of the most soothing things I've ever seen is watching this lady in Brooklyn put it on the taffy stretching machine. And it's just like doing this thing where it's just like stretching out but she's talking about i use this ingredient i use that ingredient and my salt water taffy is so much better because i don't use anything artificial and um it made me so i never knew that you could have a craving for salt water taffy but as i'm watching it she's taking all these different raw materials and she's turning them into something better than the sum of their parts you know she's putting van- real vanilla extract in there it tastes different than it smells if you've tried it straight up we human beings make stuff out of other stuff we take something, we take the simplest raw stuff and we make it. Here's what I can't do. I can't create something from nothing. Can't do that. God shows us he can create something from nothing. Here's what I'm driving at though. I want you to look at the next verse because he's still making things, but he does it differently. God is still into creating. He is a creative God. And I, there's something in here that God brought me back to as I'm sitting over there this morning, and here, here it is in verses, the next couple of verses. I'll read it to you. And God said, let there be, mine says, a vault. Another translation says an expanse. Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault or the expanse and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, 
and he gathered the, and the waters that he gathered he called seas and God saw that it was good. We see God can make something from nothing. And that preach is really good. That's exciting. Those are in those moments where you're like, I need some hope and there's none. I need some encouragement and all I have is discouragement. I need time and there doesn't seem to be any. I need provision for my finances. I need opportunity and there's nothing out there for me to pursue. And, and that preach is good. You know how else God created? This is fascinating to me. It says, how did he make sky? There were, I don't know how this looked. I don't know how you draw a picture of it, but there was just water. And he says, God took, and he already told us, he gave a word for water. It was good, right? He took good water. And what did he do? He separated good water from good water and created some new space that wasn't there before. Right? Actually, he did it this way, right? He separated water from water, and there was a vault, an expanse, a firmament, all kinds of fancy words. And what did he do next? He called it what? What is above the water? The sky. Do you see what God is able to do? God can also create by dramatically rearranging, reordering, and separating even good things and renaming that new space a new thing. How did he make oceans and seas and lands? We sung sung about oceans this morning. How did he do it? He took existing water, which was good, but it was everywhere, and he organized it a little bit better. He moved all the water into certain pockets. And I don't know whether, you, you know, your theories about, did we always have the oceans in the same places? Was the whole world all fit together? It doesn't matter to me. I, my salvation doesn't depend on it. But it's fun to talk about. It makes great puzzle pieces. But he gathers all the oceans together. And he says, what you couldn't see before I gathered them was dry land appeared. And then he gave them all names. This is land and this is ocean and this is sea. Pastor, what are you driving at this morning? Here's what I'm driving at. I think what God would want us to hear this morning is that he has a deep desire to dramatically rearrange our lives. To dramatically reorder the way that we live. In fact, I would be so bold to say, and this is not an easy thing to say, but Christianity, genuine Christianity, part of the evidence of it is a life dramatically reordered and rearranged. And perhaps the greatest barrier you have today to becoming more intimate with Christ is your absolute resistance to God's persistence in His efforts to dramatically rearrange and reorder your life. We see from the very beginning of the Bible, God is a master at creating things. He can create from nothing, but He can also take existing good components in your life that are in the wrong order. And He can separate them and create new space. Or He can rearrange them and make new things that He renames and still make good out of it. And that word, that phrase dramatically rearranging is something I could not escape this morning. And it makes me believe as strongly as I can this morning that in this room today are folks who are actively resisting, actively resisting God's desire to dramatically rearrange your life. You have given things that in and of themselves might not even be bad. You have given them a place in your life that is unhealthy. 
You have used those things as idols that you worship. You have put those things in a place in your life that exceeds the place that God and God alone deserves. And as a result of that, you are living a sub-optimized life in Christ. And I will tell you, the place that God wants to lead us to can't be something we just wander into and that we cram into in other places. If you truly, truly believe God is ultimate, if you truly, truly believe in the power of the gospel, and that is Jesus Christ himself allowed his entire life to be rearranged for you. He had it pretty good. He was watching over all the universe, the Son of God in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, did not have to struggle, did not have to suffer, did not have to be poor, surrounded by wealth you and I cannot imagine, power we cannot imagine, had no sickness, did not have to deal with with his best friends betraying him, did not have to live a life of loneliness. But because you and I got our lives completely out of order and decided we want to live our very own way. Sin entered in all of our hearts. And our lives got completely out of order. Until God gave an instruction to Jesus. Go seek and go save that which was lost. And he said, okay. Now for Jesus to do that, he had to, the Apostle Paul says, forfeit everything that he had in heaven in terms of comforts, permissions he had to in humility take upon himself not only the role of a king not just the role of a wealthy diplomat he took on the role of the worst of the worst the lowest of the low the poorest of the poor he allowed his life to be completely and dramatically rearranged not so he could gain but so that you and i could gain he came into the world and he was born into absolute poverty He lived a life or even his own brothers and sisters rejected when he came out and said, this is who I really am. His own family, his own town, the 50 or 60 people that lived in Bethlehem, or not in Bethlehem, in in Nazareth where he grew up. When he finally came out and said, this is who I am, I'm the son of God, I'm here to teach, I'm here to save, they rejected him, they threw him out. At the height of his popularity, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. People came from all around to hear him teach. He was the best teacher the world ever saw, but he didn't come to be a teacher. That wouldn't save us. When he taught 5,000 men plus women and children, some people believe up to 15 or 20,000 people at the height of his popularity followed him without a sound system as he spoke and people sat spellbound to the point where they would sit right through their meals to hear him teach. And less than two and a half years later, all of those people, save for two, had abandoned him. By today's standards, by the numbers, he was probably an epic failure of leadership. By church growth standards, he didn't hit it out of the park. He went from 0 to 12 to 20,000 to 12 to 3 to 2. He defeats death, right? He hangs on the cross and he dies. He pays the penalty for our sin. That was his assignment. Go and die. Dramatically arranged, dramatically reordered. He raises from the dead. No one's ever done that. Listen, anybody who tells you in advance they predict their own death and their own resurrection and they pull it off, I suggest we listen to anything they have to say. 
He raises from the dead, and even in his resurrected body, he appears to more than 500 people. And he says, wait, just wait, wait a few more days in Jerusalem. I'm going to send you something. And even of those 500 people who saw and perhaps even touched the resurrected Jesus, 10 days later, you know, 25% of them are still following him. 75% had moved on to something else. What are you driving at? It's difficult for us to come up with this idea of lordship that says God has to be ultimate and the gospel has to completely rearrange my life. And that's nearly impossible for us to get to. But listen, you're all regularly rearranging your life anyway. You're already doing it. And for some reason, it still leaves you up at night, doesn't it? In your effort to put your kids first, you'll work more hours, you'll spend more money, you'll run yourself ragged, You'll read books, you'll talk to friends, you'll go to chat room. In your effort to put your kids first, you'll sacrifice having them in some type of church service to let them excel on the sports field or this club or that club, and then you wonder when they're 17 or 18 and they can't explain their faith, what went wrong? Because you made efforts like I do as a parent to try and put your kids first. But when we put them in a place that God deserves, they become an idol. God wants to dramatically rearrange our life. Even things that are good have to be put in the right order. And I will tell you, yes, we can put God first on first Sunday. But you know, there's nothing we did different about this morning that's any different than any other opportunity you have on any other time of the week. We put out the bat signal, a lot of people here at 10. Right? God wants to dramatically rearrange your life. For some of us, that means some things are going to have to increase and other things are going to have to decrease. For others of us, things are going to have to be put in a different order. But what is standing between you and the next step God wants to take is generally our resistance to some type of reordering he wants to make. Some of us don't really want to fully be honest. Some of us are completely fully afraid. But I want you to know, where do you get the courage? Where do you get the courage to let a God you can't really see put his fingerprint on your life and start reordering your time, your budget, your priorities, the value you place on different friendships? How do you get the courage to do that? You look at the cross and you look at the life of Jesus. We sung about it earlier. He lives inside of us now. If you know Jesus, if you've accepted his lordship, if you've made a confession of your faith in Christ, then his spirit lives inside of you. That spirit that was hovering over you now lives within you. And through that, you have, and I have, the power to let him reorder things. But I am telling you, I am telling you as sure as I'm standing here, there's at least somebody, maybe several of you, that you need to hear me say, stop resisting God's desire to dramatically rearrange and reorder your life. You're wondering why the things that you want God to create in your life aren't there. It's because you're calling the shots and how your life is ordered. And as long as you do that, you don't have a God, you have a mascot. You pull him out when you need to be cheered up. You pull him out when you need to be entertained. You pull him out when you need something to get your mind off of things. But then when the real work comes down, you trust you. What that shows is a failure for you to believe in your heart that Jesus really is Lord and he's out for your best. 
Pastor, this is not an easy message to hear. It's not supposed to be. But the beauty of it is, is look at what God did when he rearranged things. It was even better than it was before he put his fingers on it. And everything he made was good. The things God made were good. We read it in Genesis. He looked at everything he made. And at the end he says, and it was very good. What is it in your life that you know as you're sitting here? Well, Pastor, you haven't given me a lot of examples. Because I believe this. You generally know what God's trying to rearrange in your life that you're resisting. You generally know. That's why you're resisting it. You have two choices today. You yield to that. And you say, God, I trust you. You are Lord. And I will put action to what you're dropping on my heart. Or you go out of here and you harden your heart and you say, that wasn't for me. And you go out with a harder heart than what you came in. Hebrews says that if you can hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. That's what I get nervous about on Sundays when we're really trying to invite a special atmosphere of God's presence because I realize we either yield to that and we go with it or we observe and we spectate and our heart gets a little harder. And I don't want that for you. He's not somebody you need to harden your heart against. He loves you more than you could ever possibly understand that he loves you. However much you think God loves you, you're wrong. He loves you more. He really does. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. I want to close with a word of close this time with a word of prayer. And then we're going to get our hearts ready to give. We've got some exciting stuff coming up over the next few weeks I want to tell you about. But I want to pray over you as a church this morning. Will you bow your heads with me today? I know in my heart, and I can't get away from this. I say this every Sunday, but sometimes I say it in faith, hoping. Today I say it like an absolute reality. There is absolutely somebody here. There is a war over your heart, and you know it. You would use the words, I feel torn in two different directions. I feel torn to give my life completely over to Jesus. But in the other direction, I'm so terrified as to what the consequences of that choice will mean in my own life. Because that kind of reordering seems almost too drastic and too expensive for me to think about. How do you answer that one? (laughs) What I would say is this. The way you get the courage to face up to that is that Jesus himself gave everything for you. And he didn't have to. And he did it because he loves you. And anybody who loves you that much, don't you want to give everything back to them too? Friend, I'm not going to try and make the choice any easier or any simpler. The truth is following Jesus is free, but it costs us everything, I've heard it said, which is kind of a funny thing to wrap your head around. In other words, there's no price you have to pay. You can't earn it. You don't get it. It's not about trying harder. It is, however, about total surrender. And that essentially means like you voluntarily become the formless without void earth (laughs) and you invite the Holy Spirit who's been hovering over your life and you give him permission to go and you say, you make me over how you want to. And I want to speak to that one. I don't know who you are, whether man or woman, boy or girl, I don't know. But I do know this. I know 
that you will not regret surrendering your life to Jesus. But don't wait. Because if you leave this moment, you're going to talk yourself out of it. You're going to harden your heart. It's going to haunt you. I don't want that for you. If you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, it's as simple as A, B, C. Some of you are thinking, I've heard this a million times. Good. Memorize it and get ready to use it when you have a chance to. A, admit. B, believe. C, choose. Admit. Admit that you have sinned and fallen short of the standard Jesus set. We're not perfect people that are just trying to buy ourselves insurance from going to hell. We admit that we are broken and we cannot self-repair. There's a part of our life that no matter how hard we try, we can't put it in order to our own satisfaction. We admit that. We are broken. We are flawed. We realize, we realize deep down something's wrong with me. <laughs> B, you believe in Jesus Christ. You have to believe that he is the son of God. You have to believe he came to earth and he lived a sinless life that we should have lived, that we didn't believe that he died on the cross as your substitute and my substitute in our place. And you have to believe that we are now accepted by God, not on our resume or because we've done anything or tried really hard. We're accepted on the basis of Jesus' resume and on what he did. And then see, and this is what I was driving at today, you have to choose him to be your Lord. He is already the Lord. If you've been around church, you've heard a hymn say, you know, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. That's in the New Testament. It's talking about a time in the future when all of us will appear before God. It will be too late to ask Him to save us. But there will come a time in future history where we will all be in front of the God who reveals Himself as the true God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus really is Lord. But at that point, it will be too late to ask Him to save us. We'll just be confronted with the reality of who he is. You have to choose his lordship now. Admit, believe, choose. And if you bring that to Christ, the spirit who's been hovering over you will fill you, will change you. You will be gloriously transformed. You will be saved. You will be part of the body of Christ. And there's nothing that compares to that moment. Man, do I remember that moment for me. I wonder if anybody else can remember that. Can you remember that? Remember that was for you? Oh, like David said, renew the joy of my salvation. Let me, don't let that ever get old. Don't let me ever forget. I want to pray for you this morning. I want to pray with you. If you're ready to make that decision, here's a prayer you can pray right where you're at right now. Dear Jesus, I admit I am broken and I am flawed and I have disobeyed you. I've been living life my own way. I am sorry. I repent. I change my mind. I turn away from that way of living. Because I believe in you, Jesus. Believe you're God's son, that you lived a sinless life, that you died on the cross, and that you didn't stay dead. You rose from the dead. You're alive today. And because you did all that, I have confidence you can do that in me too. That when this body dies, you can raise it again. So I accept forgiveness and I choose. I choose you as my Savior. I choose you as my Lord. I choose you as my King. And now I want to become that surface that you create on, that you rearrange, that you reorder, that you speak over, that you regroup and gather and rename my life into the order that you want it to be. I believe the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. I believe God is a God of order, not of chaos and confusion. And I look forward to seeing your story written out on the canvas of my life. In your name I pray, amen, amen. Every head up, every eye open.
Quick survey. Do you remember when you were saved, when you prayed that prayer for the first time, anybody? So, like, really remember? I mean, I was, I remember the first time when I was little and I really prayed it. I don't know how to describe it, but to this day, I remember. I remember what I was wearing, which if you've seen any of my childhood photos, <laughs> yikes, you know. I dressed myself and it's very clear. I remember the sweater I was wearing. I was like 10 or 11. My heart was beating so hard I felt like I could feel it out here. But I wasn't having a heart attack. I felt alive. I felt warm. I almost felt like I was floating. All I have is an analogy. I don't have exactly a play-by-play to describe how it was. But it was amazing. Can you imagine the most unsavable person in your life having that experience? I think about that. I've learned not to name names. I have a couple friends that are local. And I think about that when I pray for them each day. I'm taking five minutes each day these next two weeks and praying over each of them. And I'm like, oh, Lord, if they could just taste, if they could just experience. And I think about how radically different their life would be. And it gives me hope. And it gives me encouragement. We've thought about something. We've thought about something that um, a day coming up real soon that we want to rally together and see if we can't bring some of our friends and family across that finish line of faith.